0: The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit POMH.org. Amen. Well, good morning, hope you're all doing well and staying warm. It's a little chilly outside. Speaking of chilly, that's the way I'm going to just transfer myself to this point. Uh, The college group is going to Salt Lake City next week where it is cold. Now, the reason that we are going there is to support local church plants in the Salt Lake area and to dialogue with Latter-day Saint students from various universities around that area. If you're unfamiliar with Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake represents per capita, the highest amount of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more colloquially known as Mormons. Uh, Salt Lake also represents one of the areas of our country that have the, the least churched people as far as Uh, just pure biblical gospel is concerned. And so you'd think, why would you go to Salt Lake? That seems very strange. It is a very different part of our country where the gospel uh, needs to be preached. And so we want to go there to experience a cross-cultural type of mission experience without ever leaving the country, uh, to learn more about Latter-day Saints and what they believe so that we can better articulate our faith to them. And also to support the church plant efforts that are going on there, because it is very rocky soil. And so we would ask, not this week, but the following week, as myself and Rusty and Kate Yates and Justin McGeehee lead the college students out there, that you would keep us in prayer. We would really appreciate that. All right, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. We've just read it. Paul is pretty much summarizing what he has just told us in all of chapter 9. Chapter 9 is about salvation. And there are things in chapter 9 that at surface level can be very difficult to understand. We're talking about salvation, the relationship between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Why is it that it seems like God made a bunch of promises to the Jews and now Paul is telling us uh, those promises, you kind of misunderstood them. Not all Israel is Israel. And so to begin in chapter 10, we have to remember when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't get to the end of chapter 9 and say, okay, write a 10. Great, we're moving on to another chapter. This is kind of like the step we're taking out of 9 and then into 10. It's a transition text. So we're going to see a lot of the same things we saw in 9, but at the same time, 10, 1 through 4 is leaning us into what Paul wants to tell us in the next section of this letter. And really, when I look at look at this small portion of his letter, I'm thinking hearts. H-E-A-R-T-S that this is a section about hearts. It's a section about Paul's heart for the nation of Israel. It's about the problem of the nation of Israel's heart, and it's about the solution to all hearts, both Jews and Gentiles. And that's kind of where Paul is going to take us, into the message of the gospel being delivered for all to hear and for all to believe. So let's look at this first part, the desire of Paul's heart for for Israel's salvation. He says in verse one, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Is this not the way that Paul essentially began Romans chapter nine? He said in Romans chapter nine, verses one through three, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Then throughout chapter 9, he tells us why his heart is broken. He comes out and he says, many in Israel have been cut off. That's why I want to be cut off in exchange for them. Not because God's word has failed. You've misunderstood that. They've not been cut off because God is unjust. He will have mercy to whom he wants to have mercy, and he will have compassion to whom he wants to have compassion. And he's certainly not, uh, uh, the, the Jews have certainly not been cut off. I should say many Jews have not been cut off because God is unfair. Remember, in tandem with God's ability to destroy the pottery, is his good and perfect and loving character to reform and rebuild that pottery into something beautiful. None of these reasons were the answers that Paul gave us. Why have so many in Israel been cut off then? He tells us at the end of nine, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, here's the answer, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness didn't succeed. They failed in that task. That word, pursue, is dioka, which means to relentlessly chase or to relentlessly hunt for something. I went hunting for squirrels this weekend, and I'm happy to say if you like squirrels, I failed miserably. because I'm not a very good hunter, barely a good fisher. Once I pull the fish in, I don't know what to do with it, so I swing it over to Mark Powell and he takes care of the rest for me, right? So no, I, I didn't know what I was doing, so the squirrels are okay. But I was relentless in this pursuit. In fact, I was leaving the area where I went hunting and a squirrel as if he knew what I was doing that day and failed ran down a tree in front of my car and up another tree. I think he was laughing. I heard his little, little voice laughing. But hunting is the picture that you get behind this word, to pursue. It's this relentless pursuit. If you've been hunting, you know the feeling. Like, I've got to leave here with something, right? And that's what Israel was doing with the law. It's also translated in the New Testament as to persecute. The exact same word, to pursue, is translated as to persecute. Well, what are you doing when you're persecuting? You're not stopping at anything to ensure that your goal has been met. That is what Israel was doing with the law. She was chasing the law down as if it were her enemy, as if it were something to be persecuted. Isn't that a strange twist in the way to think about what she was doing? But she never achieved that goal. The Gentiles, on the other hand, who didn't even lift a finger, who stayed in the cabin the whole time while everyone else was hunting, all of a sudden received the prize that Israel was expecting that she was trying to achieve. She did this through faith, and this thought, not that the Gentiles received salvation, but that the Jews did not, this thought breaks Paul's heart. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is to be saved. You see, Paul is yearning for the day when Jeremiah's words would reign true among his own people. Jeremiah prophesied and said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, or Israel, a branch that's righteous, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In these days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That is Christ. We are not our own righteousness. We do not have our own righteousness in us. This was the great promise throughout the Old Testament, that a righteousness that is outside of us would come to us. The Lord himself would be our righteousness. The problem for many Jews is that they rejected that branch of righteousness. They rejected the righteousness that God was trying to give her. And because Paul loves his people, he has this heartfelt prayer for her salvation. Now, that's interesting considering everything that Paul has just said. Think about when Paul is saying, my prayer, my desire is for Israel to know the Lord. It comes immediately after his teaching of God's ultimate determination in salvation. He just taught us, God elects whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. He has mercy on whom he wills. The conclusion that so many of us walk off from is that we're just going to drift down this river of fatalism. But Paul doesn't go there, does he? He didn't just tell us God elects and hardens and has mercy on whom he wills. There are some who are not receiving God's mercy. That's just the way it is. Let's just accept the fate and move on. He doesn't go there. He knows some are hardened, but he prays for their salvation anyway. I think that is a big takeaway from us. We have chapter nine now in our rear view. It's behind us. And I think a question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we doing with that information? Like, how are we applying it to our lives? And how do we understand what Paul was trying to tell us? Romans 9, for so many of us, can become troublesome. It becomes bothersome because we misinterpret it, and because we misinterpret it, we misunderstand it. If God makes honorable and dishonorable vessels, and God showed mercy to some and not to others, here's the question that bothers us, how do I know which vessel I am? That's the first question that we jump to. And when we misunderstand that point of the passage, we abuse it. Well, if I'm a vessel of destruction, who cares? What does it matter? I'll just live the way that I have been designed by God to live, that being in sin. That is Christian fatalism, the very thing that this text should not draw us to. Theologian, Abraham Kuyper, I think helps us out here a lot. He says that it's true, based on the authority of God's word and on scripture, we have to understand grace is particular. All vessels will experience God's common grace throughout their life. They have breath in their lungs, everything that they need, not want, but everything that we need is given to us. We are blessed with relationships, and God is staying his hand of judgment by showing mercy, by not punishing sin the moment that it happens. That is God's common grace to every single person in the world. But as John tells us in his letters, there is a grace upon grace that not all will experience. Not all will recognize their sinful state. Not all will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Not every single person is going to experience the atoning work of Christ. Not all will stand before God as sheep. There are goats, Jesus warns us as well. But lest we forget, we are not isolated islands. We are not lone individuals limited to ourselves. As individual Christians, we are part of a community. We are members of a large body. We are participants in a group identity. We are in a covenant community, plural, a new people that God is building, a covenantal people, not just a covenantal person. And it's at this point where Kuiper notes, speaking of nine, He says, without the doctrine of the covenant, without understanding that God is saving people in a community, the doctrine of election is mutilated. We tear it apart. And the frightening lack of assurance of faith is the valid punishment resulting from this mutilation of truth. In other words, he says, if you misunderstand what Paul is saying in chapter 9, the punishment for that misunderstanding is staying up at night wondering, which vessel am I? Or not caring which vessel you are and floating down that river of fatalism. Do you fret over whether or not you are a vessel of wrath or honor? I want to say two things to that. One, if you fret over that question, that's actually a good sign, because the lost do not fret over whether or not they are lost. That is a small, not the total, but a small indicator that you understand uh, what God is doing in your life. But second, it's also a concern because God's desire for you is not to live your life in crippled fear, unable to take even a step of obedience, because everything that you do, you're coming back to, well, which one am I? And Kuiper would suggest that the, the, the punishment for that type of understanding with this text is, is this crippling fear of not knowing not having an assurance of faith. People will hear chapter 9 and make decisions on what they believe to be God's will for them. I believe I'm a vessel of destruction, therefore I am now going to live as if I am a vessel of destruction. What you're doing in that moment is you're confusing God's will in two ways. There are two things to God's will. He has a hidden aspect to his will and a declared aspect to his will. And you are confusing those two to be one and the same. God's hidden will is the fact that because he's omniscient, he knows the story from beginning to end. So it doesn't even matter how you understand the doctrine of election. If God is omniscient, he knows your ultimate destination anyway, but he has not revealed that to you. It's his prerogative to keep that amongst himself within himself. That's his hidden will. What he has told us is his declared will. What he wants to happen is that all would come to faith and that all would repent. So the question after chapter nine to answer is, how can I know God's will for my soul? That's easy to believe the gospel, to repent and to come to Jesus. Like it's very simple, but it's true. And if you come to him, Jesus gives us a promise. He will never cast you out because he's building a new people. He's building a new nation. He's building a covenant community. So we can never forget that this doctrine of election does not operate outside of the covenant of grace. It doesn't operate outside of God bringing together a people. Each individual Christian must always keep in mind and remember that we are a part of the Greek word ekklesia, church, the assembly, multiple people. You are one piece of a massive mosaic of God's love. My wife and I had the great opportunity years ago when we were living in England to visit Rome, and we went to the Vatican, and we went to St. Peter's Basilica, and we turned the corner, and we heard this voice, and it was the Pope, so we got to go sit outside for his outdoor mass. That was great, but then, you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin came, and they were looking at me like, what are you doing here, right? Just kidding. I thought it was a lot of fun. This is when Benedict was uh, Pope. So it was a little while ago. Well, anyway, after the Mass was over, oh, we also saw a priest, um, a priest, a rabbi, and a pastor from a Greek Orthodox church. And I was like, this is the beginning of a terrible joke, right? <laughs> well, we had the opportunity to go in to St. Peter's Basilica. If you ever get the opportunity, I highly recommend it. And the one thing that I remember is the one thing that uh, we regret doing, which is going up to the top of the dome right so you can go in the dome uh, but it's a tight squeeze right it's not like uh imagine somebody trying to go past us on our way back down it didn't happen you just like went in chunks (laughs) and it got worse uh it got very claustrophobic so yeah you it's, it's not you have to like hang on to the rope and you're practically like climbing up but uh the reward is worth it because it took us like 20 minutes to get to the top but when we got to the top Pretty much all you see is this mosaic close up. You can't see the picture at all. You just see the little tiny pieces, every single one of them, different, a different color, one's jagged, one is smooth. Tessera is what they're called, the individual single pieces. And I thought that was neat to be able to see that. But what's even neater is when you look across the dome, and you see the pattern that you're standing next to in a little bit fuller light. So this was the pattern that we were standing next to. You can still see each individual piece, can't you? But this isn't even the most beautiful thing, because when you get back down and you look up to where you were just standing, that's the picture. Can you see a single tessera? No, you'd have to climb all the way back up to see it again. And that's the picture of God's community. It is this beautiful story that he is building with single individuals. And I think sometimes we think too much about the individual square, the individual piece about me. But your life story is not about you. Your life story is about what God is doing through we building this beautiful picture to his glory. If we read individualism back to that text, we miss the community picture that he's trying to build for us. See, this is precisely why Paul's brokenhearted for Israel, not individuals in Israel, but many within Israel itself. Truly, there were individual Jews who were saved. Paul himself is probably a a great example here, right? But in general, Israel was looking to the prospect of finding herself, her own righteousness, which was leading to her destruction. Think about it, she looked the part, she spoke the language, she talked the talk. On the outside, Israel looked like she had it all together and she was going down the right path but she was actually walking away from God, ironically. Here's what Paul says. He says, I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You see, this was the problem of Israel's heart for salvation. It wasn't her willingness. It wasn't her enthusiastic energy to please God. It was the fact that she was doing this without knowledge. What does Paul mean by calling them zealous. Today, being zealous, not necessarily a good thing, right? If you, if you invite somebody over to, to your house and like, look, I'm really zealous about NASCAR, would you like to come over? Like, what are you expecting when you get there? Everything's gonna be decked out in NASCAR. For some reason, he talked his wife into buying one of those NASCAR-shaped beds. That's weird, right? You don't wanna go to this guy's house because all you're gonna do is talk about NASCAR. Uh, other things we do with, with the word zealous in our culture is we equate it with anger. So if you've ever heard of the group, the Westboro Baptist Church, they pick picket soldiers' funerals. They're famous for saying, we're not angry, uh, we're just zealous. Like, okay, I don't think you're using that word <laughs> properly, right? Or we hear this all the time on the news. It doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you're coming from, but a zealot is used negatively. You're a conservative zealot. You're a liberal zealot. What does that mean? You're mindlessly uh, following people and you're overly energetic for a movement that I think is wrong. So for us, being a zealot or having zeal, not necessarily a good thing. But in Paul's day, uh, for a lot of people, it was a good thing. There was a group of Jews called the zealots. Because they had zeal for the Lord, again, without knowledge. And what they were trying to do was overthrow the Roman government so that they could have independence back and they could enact all of these promises that God gave them. They were doing it incorrectly, though, clearly. And just to be clear, zeal should not necessarily be a bad thing for us. The Lord Jesus had zeal. John tells us that straight up. Jesus cleanses the temple. Drives men out who are oppressing and swindling and stealing. Here's John's account of that moment. Making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them, the money changers, out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So whenever somebody's like, hey, just do what Jesus does, like, well, flipping a table is not outside of the realm of possibilities. (laughs) And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What was happening is people were coming to the temple and they were having to exchange their money for temple fun bucks. And the rate, the currency rate was like two for one. And so people were just stealing. His disciples remembered what was written when they were looking at Jesus' passion to cleanse his father's house. Zeal for your house will consume me. John's quoting Psalm 69, 6, which says for zeal for your house has consumed me. Here's what John leaves off, but I think is important and why John only gives us the first half. We're meant to investigate the second. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's a nod to the atonement, isn't it? The zeal that Christ had has something to do with the reproach of men to God. And because Christ's zeal with knowledge Following his father's will, that zeal would lead to the reproach that God wants to pour out on man, then gets transferred over to him. That's the key. Jesus showed zeal, but with knowledge. The Jews, however, were not showing zeal with God's knowledge. This is something Paul knew very well. I mean, he was the poster child. For zeal without knowledge, going around house to house, persecuting before he was converted to Christianity, hauled men off to prison, zealously flogged them, arrested them, harassed them, imprisoned them, and even allowed them to be executed. But reflecting on this zeal, I can't help but think it's in the back of his mind. He remembers it was done without knowledge. Paul's zeal, the zeal of the Jews, it was done with passion and sincerity and conviction but you can do something passionately and sincerely and with conviction and still be wrong. They were zealous for God and ironically working against him and what he was trying to do. Without knowledge, our zeal can actually hurt what we are zealous for. Well, what is that knowledge? Paul uses a very specific word, epigenosis, which means on top of knowledge. And we typically see this word all throughout the New Testament to mean something related to the knowledge of the gospel. So for example, Colossians 1:10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, increasing in the epigenosis, knowledge of God. Ephesians 4:13, the unity of the faith and the epigenosis, knowledge of the Son of God. In First Timothy two, three through four. God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the epigenosis, the knowledge of truth. Knowledge of God, knowledge of the Son of God, knowledge of truth. This is the knowledge that we must pair and marry our zeal together with. Paul is essentially saying, Israel, the people of God, were zealous for God they didn't even know. For God's Son, whom they had rejected. Boy, we're certainly at risk of doing the same thing, aren't we? We can be compassionate, or uh, we, we can have uh, passion, we can be convicted, we can be very zealous for something, but if we're not doing it for the gospel, or if the gospel is not primary in our zeal, uh, we'll run into the exact same thing. It's not wrong to strive after uh, uh, obedience, but when we strive after obedience, in pursuit of our own righteousness, we've forgotten the epigenosis of God. We've forgotten the gospel, and then we turn in on ourselves, and we commit the exact same fallacy that the Jews did. We can have zeal to have a home with a good marriage, uh, raising children in the ways of the Lord, but if we forget but the gospel in Christ is the centerpiece behind everything that we're doing in our marriage and in the home. Essentially, what we're doing is we're working with passion for our family, for our marriages, and we're no longer working in passion for Christ. And that, by its very definition, is idolatry. This is why we run into so many errors, where we run into so many difficulties zeal without knowledge leads us ultimately to idolatry. And in this really weird, ironic twist, Israel, who is worshiping God the way that she thought she was supposed to, was worshiping another God. A God who demands they become righteous on their own. A God who did not promise David to give a branch of righteousness. A God who said, I'm not your righteousness, you are my own righteousness, or you are your own righteousness. That's a different God altogether. That is not the God of scripture. She erred when she had zeal for her own righteousness. When she rejected Jeremiah's words, allow your hearts to be zealous. They just need to be zealous for Jesus. Why? Because he is the solution for all hearts salvation. He is the solution for calming all of our zeal. This is what Paul says in verses three through four. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is a point that Paul has been hammering home over and over and over again, all through Romans. Why? Because it's the point we forget over and over and over again. Simple gospel truths. I can't count how many times Paul says in his letters, I remind you, and then he reminds you of the basics. We never graduate beyond that. It's very ironic here That the Jews were ignorant of God's righteousness because they were picked, they were selected to study, to emulate, and to teach the nations God's righteousness. And instead they rejected God's righteousness and they were trying to uh, get this done themselves. They didn't submit to the gift God desired to give them. You see, they rejected God's authority to stop their busy hands from working. And in doing so, they rejected the hand that was pierced for them. This is the major point that I think Paul wants to make here. As we're moving from 9 and we're going into 10, where Paul is going to begin to preach about salvation as a message to all people. The solution for an unrighteous heart is not the law. The solution to the unrighteous heart is not the law. It's the fulfillment of the law. And that's where we can run into some issues, right? When we come across Paul saying, Jesus is the end of the law, what do we think? Well, that was plan A, but oh, it's gone now. Now you have me and me alone. So just ditch everything that God has ever said between the time of Abraham to now because I ended the law. I got rid of it. Is that what Paul is saying? No, absolutely not. He's using a word telos. The end is the word telos, and telos means fulfillment, or aim, or goal, or purpose. In theology, there is a term called eschatology. Eschatology comes from the word eschatos, which means the end. And eschatology studies How is the universe, how is the world going to end? Everybody has an eschatology. Even secular astronomers will say, well, the universe is going to collapse back in on itself. That's an eschatology. And I think we come at Paul's words here, when he says Christ is the end of the law, as if it's some kind of end in that sense. But that's not true. In philosophy, there's something called teleology, which comes from the word that Paul's using here, telos. And teleology is the big question of what's the purpose of our existence? What's the point, the end goal, the aim of the universe and its existence? That's more along the lines of what Paul is talking about here. Telos, the end does not mean termination, but terminus. It does not mean the end, but the end goal. There is a man named Plutarch who famously wrote these words thinking about legal law. He said, justice is the end of the law or the goal of the law. So when you're thinking about achieving justice in a legal system, that's the whole point of the legal system to begin with. And Plutarch uses the same word that Paul uses, telos. So that justice is the telos of the law. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. He's saying that the righteousness of Christ is the goal of God's law. That's the entire point that the law was given to point to Jesus in the culmination in the fulfillment of it. So I think the best way to understand what Paul is saying here is for Christ is the culmination. He is the point He is the end goal for the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. This can be confusing, though, because when you come to it, even when you're thinking about culmination, you think, well, Paul must be ditching the law. That is definitely not what he means. First, Christ has not terminated the law. Because if he terminated the law, why would he have said, or why would Paul later have said, that I appeal to you to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Where have we heard holy and acceptable before? Paul's description of the law. It is holy. It is what is acceptable and what is good. You see, the law still points us to God's holy standard and his perfection And it is a mirror to our soul to see how we cannot add up to that. It still communicates what is holy and acceptable to God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith, He is transforming us, fixing us to that measure so that one day, when Christ returns or we go home to Him, we will be glorified and that standard will be fulfilled in us. Second, Christ is not saying that He's rendered the law useless or unprofitable. If that were the case, then Peter was mis- or, uh, Paul was mistaken when he said all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. What scripture is Paul talking about? The Old Testament. He's writing after Christ's resurrection, after preaching the gospel for years to Timothy, and he's saying still the law is good for training in righteousness. If we throw the law out, then we throw out the standard that Christ fills. In fact, the same work of Christ that set us free from the law actually commits us to obedience. Well, how do we know what that obedience is? Well, you go back to the law. So what does Paul mean? That Christ has fulfilled it. He's stayed true to it. And now we see its purpose. He told us that was his mission at the beginning of Matthew. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But how? What in the world was Jesus talking about? There's a lot of different ways that he fulfilled the law. And this is a huge conversation to have because we can already start to think in terms of, well, does that mean Christians are supposed to follow the biblical uh, feasts? The, do we have to follow all of the types of laws that seem better suit to a government in Israel than not? But I think of all of the ways that Christ fulfilled the law, these three are of utmost importance. First, Christ activated and validated God's promises. God made a ton of promises in the Old Testament, and when God gave the law to Israel, it was conditioned on their obedience that if you do this, then you will receive blessing. Obviously, we know the story. They failed. So the question for the Jews shouldn't be, has God's promises failed? The better question is, you failed. Should God still stay true to his promises? And the answer is, graciously is yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. God, we as a people have sinned. Will you save us? Yes. How? Through Christ. God, I am following your son, but I have sinned. Will you forgive me? Yes. How? Through Christ. God, this world is messed up. I'm longing for the day when we see things the way that they should be become reality. Is that in your future plans? Yes. How? Through Christ. Every single promise that God gives us finds their yes in Christ. Second, the blood sacrifice demanded by the law for sin is once for all completely 100% satisfied in Christ. That is the cross. There is now only one mediator between us and God, the one who stood in our place. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. He said, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, not annual temporary sacrifices, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And finally, That points us to the third one. As Christ is going into the holy places, he is our priest, our high priest that stands between humanity and God. This is one priest who will never be fired. He will never grow tired. He will never retire. He is our high priest forever. He is a high priest who sympathizes with us because he's walked with us. So when he's mediating for us, and in his atonement, he recognizes where we've been. Hebrews tells us, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I think very importantly, this high priest is not somebody who is just tucked up away in a temple somewhere but that because we as the people of God are the new temple that God is building, the high priest resides with us. The spirit of Christ resides with us. This is a promise that Jesus gave not to his disciples, not to the Jews. He told this specifically to the Samaritans, worse than Gentiles, the half breeds of Jew and Gentile. To a woman at the well, who had habitually committed adultery and had to come in the middle of the day when it's the hottest and the water's the worst so that nobody would talk behind her back. And Jesus promised her, there's a day coming for people like you, because of my redemption, who will be reconciled and restored To the righteousness that God is calling us all to, so that you will be able to worship in spirit and in truth. Not on this hill, not on that hill, but wherever you are and wherever the people of God are because my spirit is going to reside in him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Every one of these promises we see in the Old Testament are magnified. They are maximized. They take their big conclusions in the person and work of Jesus. How? Because, amen, it's a big amen, right? That's right, that's right. All of these promises are fulfilled and they're made available to us by merely faith. Faith that Jesus is the telos. He is the end goal. He is the trajectory. That the law as a means of righteousness is true for everyone who believes, all who believe. Christ was the true goal that Israel sought. And yet, many in Israel set him aside and disbelieved, thinking that they could achieve it on their own. Paul is saying that the Jews did not just go wrong in their pursuit of the law and messed up. Paul's saying they got it wrong when they decided to pursue the law absent the righteousness of God. You see, far from the law being superseded or rendered obsolete, the very spirit of the fulfillment of the law, Jesus Christ lives in us. And if that's the case, as Paul has already told us in chapter eight, we now have the ability through the spirit to obey our father. I think this just goes to show of the many things that it can, that Jesus is the greater Moses we're talking about law, right? So who's the guy that we always think about when it comes to law? Moses. This is the man who God called up to the mountain and gave him the law, and he came back down. So he goes up empty-handed. He comes back down with the law, and he displays the law for all the people, and we know the story. They're like, yeah, that sounds good. We're going to do everything that you asked us to, and like a chapter later, just kidding, we sin. Like, they c- couldn't even hold it together for a chapter, and, in uh, Moses, I can't, I can't imagine. I mean, he is a sinner himself, okay? He's not a perfect man, but he is in constant communication with God. And so he clearly sees God's will. I can't imagine, like, he must have rubbed his temples raw for everything that Israel was doing wrong. And so at the very end of Moses's life, he's not like, man, guys, good job keep going. This is Joshua. He's going to lead you into the promised land. You've run the good race. See it through to completion. No, what does Moses say? It's crazy. He says, bring me the law, put it on top of the Ark of the Covenant, because that's going to be a testimony against these stiff-necked people. I am tired of it, right? This is what he says, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are to the people. Behold, even today while I'm alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? When the teacher's gone and the substitute teacher comes in, it's going to be worse if you were misbehaving when I was here. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you and in the days to come evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the works of your hands. That's all. Right. What a tone of skepticism, right? How despairing are those words? Where's the promise? The promise is, you're going to make God mad. After Moses' death, he prophesied dishonor and disobedience. Thank God that Jesus is the greater Moses. Thank God he's the greater Moses. Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, had hope grow out of his death because the last words that he said before he died were not, this was all for nothing, I'm going back to heaven, and I'm telling my father what you did. You stiff-necked people, I'm tired of it. He said, it is finished. That is a soil by which hope grows, because he knows that in his fulfillment, And by our faith, we will be able to become the people as a community in whom God is using to build that mosaic of his love. But Christ did not stay dead. He rose again. And he gave us exactly what it would look like for us to build this community, to call others to repentance and faith in him, to rest easy, not in the cursing that Moses predicted, but the promise that Christ uttered from the cross, it is finished. He says in his last words to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because it's finished. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age." There is despair for those who pursue righteousness by works of the law. They will receive the prediction that Moses gave them. But there is hope for those who pursue faith, those who pursue obedience by stepping and walking in faith theirs is the promise that we hear from the cross. The law points us to him because as it is with all of God's promises, everything is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Church, let us never ever forget that message. And what I want to do now in anticipation for us going into chapter 10 and reading Paul's words about a message to all, I want to pray a special prayer for building the kingdom that he has given us, calling others to repentance. I think it would be appropriate that God, who has given us this beautiful message and who has changed us, would now ask us to be stewards of that message as well. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have set a standard that meets your character. You have not watered down or dumbed down or lowered the bar of who you are. You've kept it the same. Instead, what you did was you condescended to us through your son who was able to keep that standard and gives us his merit and his righteousness on your behalf, merely by our faith. Lord, it is such a blessing to know that the last words of Moses do not reign over us, but the last words of your son do, that it is finished, now go. Lord, today as we move into chapter 10, we want to pray for those who know you not, for those whom you are calling for those who you desire to show mercy, for those who you desire to reform, from every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Lord, we admit there are tribes outside of our own that we look with in disdain. They are the other to us, perhaps even with hostility. But Lord, at the foot of your cross, it is level ground, and you are calling together a new nation a new tribe, a single kingdom, that the color of our skin, the background of our economics, our characteristics, our likes, our dislikes, our personalities, are all just different shapes and different colors of the beautiful mosaic that you are building that tells your story of your love. Lord, use us, send us whether it be in our marriage or in our homes or in our workplace, in the United States, to Salt Lake City, or even abroad overseas. Lord, send us so that we can share that message of your love so that we can tell those individuals to stop busying themselves with a task that is impossible because you've already accomplished it. It is finished. We thank you. And it is in the name of your Son and our Lord that we pray. Amen.